The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, you guys ready? I'm ready. We've got we've got two more weeks, including this one, this this week and next, and we're done on prayer. So we need to seize the moment, don't we, Tom? I'm sorry, I have a cold. So some nasty little virus is attacking me, but I think I'll recover soon. Let's uh, begin with prayer. Father, thank you for this evening, this time to be together, and we ask, Lord, that you would be glorified in our study. I pray that we'd learn more about. Uh, power through prayer, and then if we have time to get into examples of prayer, uh, I pray that you teach us thereby as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Just by way of review, I'd like to start on page five of the first handout, which is one with the yellow cover. We uh, didn't get all the way through this last time, and uh, that was two weeks ago. And we're talking about the idea of power through prayer. Um, You know, it's such an important idea and concept that God's strength is made perfect in weakness. And one of the number one ways that God's strength is made perfect in weakness is if we present that weakness to God in prayer. I mean, isn't it really just being honest? Aren't we really just saying to God, I can't do it, it's too hard for me, I'm over my head and all that? That's really just the truth. So I think it's a good thing to be truthful with God. It's not like he doesn't know us, as it says in one of the Psalms. He knows our frame. He knows that we're just dust. And so he knows very well our weakness. And it greatly glorifies him when we bring our weakness to him. So what I was doing was I was just going through some case studies of how in the scripture weakness is turned into strength. How people are able to do amazing things because God strengthened them or gave them strength. And I don't know always what that means. But uh, it's a kind of an energy or power or something that comes on a human being, enabling them to do what God wants them to do. So we talked first about uh, Samson, physical strength, physical weakness turned into strength. You know, we need that, don't we? I mean, our bodies are the vehicle for our service to Christ. And, uh, you know, Samson is a picture of how uh, the Spirit of God can come on someone and make them very, very strong. Now, I'm not saying you should expect to do similar feats of strength. I don't think there have been any that have uh, rivaled Samson. But um, <clears throat> if you're feeling physically weak, you're feeling tired, you're feeling dragged out, I think you ought to bring that to God in prayer, especially if you still have work to do that day. There's still some good works God wants you to do and you don't know where you're going to get the, get the strength. You ought to go and be honest and say, Lord, give me strength to do these things I still have to do. So physical strength, uh, that could include sickness, other things that make us fig- physically weak. So uh, weakness turned into strength physically. We also saw how that happened to Daniel. Remember how Daniel was overwhelmed by the angel. The angel laid, you know, just the glory and the, and the greatness of this spiritual being uh, laid him low on the ground and he could barely breathe. And how the Lord, uh, I mean, sorry, the angel touched Daniel and gave him strength and he was able to stand up. So that's a, a really powerful uh, image there. Same thing with Nehemiah, the people's, hands were giving out. I mean, it just there's only, only so many boulders you can carry, and after a while, it just gets exhausting, and they, their, their hands are getting weak. And so, you know, Nehemiah at one po- uh, point prays, now strengthen my hands. And not just, I'm sure, he prayed for himself, but he prayed for the people, and the people were able in a remarkably short time to uh, build the wall. So we talked about that last time. Also, there's emotional weakness, isn't there? I mean, what do we mean by emotional weakness? Well, it's just being overwhelmed with the circumstances of your life, and you feel depressed, you feel discouraged, you feel downcast, and that can be every bit as debilitating as some physical malady. Uh, you know, the, frankly, it might end up about the same thing. You just feel like you can't even get up off the couch or off the bed or whatever. You're just depressed, discouraged, you're down. And um, <clears throat> there's a picture of that in 1 Samuel 30 as David was greatly distressed because of the circumstances of his family being kidnapped by the Amalekites. And, and it says David found strength in the Lord his God. That's emotional strength, to be bolstered and strengthened emotionally. I think we need to know how to do that because I think that discouragement is one of the great weapons of the devil. And I think all of us face it from time to time. You've probably been tempted to be or even a little bit down or discouraged sometime in the last month, if not more recently. And so you can, through prayer, find strength in the Lord and you ought to ask him for it. 
Uh, thirdly, there is spiritual weakness that can be turned into strength. What do I mean by spiritual weakness? Well, there's a number of aspects in which we can be weak. For example, our faith can be weak. You can have a faith, but it could be a weak faith. You're not really able to trust God for all that he wants you to trust him for. And so our faith needs to be strengthened. You remember this encounter in Mark where, where the, the man of the, the father of the um, demon-possessed boy brings him to Jesus. Remember how he said his disciples, Jesus' disciples couldn't do anything for him. And so he extends that to Jesus. Say, I don't think much of your disciples. Maybe you're not much better. But at any rate, if you can do anything, could you please help him? And you remember how Jesus picks up on that. If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And the man answers for all of us on behalf of all of us. Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. He's asking for strength in his faith. He's asking that his faith would be strengthened. That's a very important prayer. Uh, like in Luke 22, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. So that is a remarkable uh, statement. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Jesus, the intercessor, is interceding to God the Father that Simon's faith will not give out, that it'll make it through all of the the temptations and trials that he's about to face. And uh, it's Satan directly working on Simon, using his fears of death. The slave girl says, you're not one of his disciples, are you? And, you know, all of that and all the psychological you know, the depression, the discouragement that he must have faced. You remember how after he denied the Lord the third time and the cock crowed and it says in Luke's gospel that Jesus looked right at him as he was moving on to the next phase of his trial and providentially is able to look right, look him right in the eye at the lowest moment of his life. You know, told you you'd do it and now you've done it. And uh, how low do you feel at that moment? And he goes outside and he weeps bitterly. But Jesus says, you know, there's going to be all kinds of misery for you tonight. You're going to weep and all that. But I've prayed for one thing in particular, that your faith won't fail. And it won't. Well, why won't it fail? Is it because Simon Peter found within himself the deep reserves and the resolve to keep believing in Jesus? It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the fact that the Father marshaled some spiritual resource, which I cannot describe to you, to strengthen that which he gave birth to to begin with. Matthew 16, this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Simon's faith had been given to him as a gift by God the Father. So doesn't it make sense for Jesus to go back to the Father saying, now strengthen it and make it, make it stronger. And, and I believe that Jesus is doing that on our behalf all the time. He is praying for our faith that it won't fail. And if you're a believer, if you're elect, you're chosen, one of God's chosen people. You've come to faith in Christ. Your faith will never fail. But don't boast in that. Don't brag about it except boast in the Lord because Jesus is praying for you that it won't fail at the right hand of God. So he's going to bolster your faith. How will he do that? I don't know. I think he uses a lot of things, a word of encouragement from a brother or sister. He might use some scripture verse that you're reading. He might use something. He can do a lot of things to strengthen faith. He might just do it directly. You know, just imparting something directly to your soul so that your faith gets strong and renewed. He can do all of that. So weak faith made stronger. There's also a weak apprehension of Christ's love made stronger in Ephesians 3. What do I mean by that? We don't have a, a, a full sense of how much Christ loves us. We ought to know better than that. We ought to, you know, we ought to have a stronger sense of Jesus' love for us. That's why Paul prays in Ephesians 3 that they would have power, interesting word there, power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Power to grasp. Grasp is metaphorical. It's not something you're doing with your hands, your forearms and all that. It's something you're doing in your soul, with your character, your spirit, with your heart, whatever language you use for that internal part of you, that you would grasp how much Jesus loves you. And that takes power to have a sense of that because Satan's always attacking that apprehension that we have of Christ's love. We always are underestimating how much he loves for us. Well, you know, Jesus, I knew you died for me, but, you know, that kind of thing. It's so ridiculous. It's so foolish. But we do that. We underestimate his love for us and think somehow he doesn't love us anymore. And so we need to be bolstered in the area of our apprehension or our sense of Christ's love for us. By the way, why is that important? Why does it matter whether we really have a sense of how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ? Okay. Because of our failures, we may doubt his love for us. Okay. Why is it important that we 
have a strong sense that he loves us. Yes, Margaret. Okay. Affects how we love him. We love because he first loved us. Could it be if you take that logic, we love better if we have a better sense of how much he loves us? That's quite possible. Does it affect our service for him? If we feel that he really doesn't love us very much, do you think that's going to affect how you live? I think it definitely will. Conversely, if you have a sense of great confidence in his love for you, he loves me. You know, you think about John, how John wrote the Gospel of John and how he never mentioned himself but always called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Isn't that great? Wouldn't you love to have that kind of confidence? He writes about that confidence in 1 John. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. I think we ought to have that kind of confidence. Well, it takes strength for that. And so Paul prays for it. He says, I, you know, I'm praying that you would have, have power together with all the saints to grasp it. So it comes through prayer. We can pray that for each other. Pray it for yourself too. So weak apprehension of Christ's love for you can be made strengthened. It can be strengthened through prayer. We also need power for evangelism. I mean, when you stop and think what it is we're really trying to do, we're going as messengers into some dark realm, okay, to rescue people that are dead in their transgressions and sins and bring them along with you into a new kingdom. As Paul said, you know, if you really see it properly, who is equal to such a task? If you really see it properly, you're going to need tremendous power. That's why there's so many verses that talk about power in relation to evangelism. You know, for example, Acts 1.8, of course, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So that, I think, is a power within you. Um, you look at, for example, the effect of that power on the apostles, Peter himself being the prime example. Do you see any change in Peter over that 40-day period? Tim, what was the change you see in Peter from across 40 days from the night Jesus was arrested to the day that he's there uh, at Pentecost preaching the, the gospel? Do you see any difference? What, what change do you see in him? That's right. That's right. He's a powerful man at that point. Powerful man. And... Uh, you know, the night that Jesus was arrested, he was, he was really afraid of, of what? What was he desperately afraid of? He was afraid of dying. Afraid of suffering and dying. All of that. He's afraid of dying despite all of his protestations. I'm ready to die. No, you're not. <laughs> Jesus knew better. You are not ready to die. And in my sovereign plan, it's not time for you to die. Time will come when you will, but you're not ready for all that. Was he ready to die at the day of Pentecost? Was he afraid of death? Was he afraid of being put to death by the Sanhedrin? Absolutely not. Completely bold. He says, he is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. I love that. Just the boldness of Peter. Where does that kind of confidence come from? Well, it comes from the Holy Spirit. And so we ought to ask, you know, if you're not the witness you ought to be, you say, Lord, I need power for witnessing. I need power for evangelism. Give me power. It's the very thing you said the Holy Spirit would, would come to do, that we would be witnesses. You know, so there's that, that sense of power for evangelism. Or again, uh, I like Acts 4, 29 through 31. After Peter and John return, after the threats, they return to the uh, church and the church pl- prays together. And look what they pray for here in Acts 4, 29 through 31. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Now, what does that word enable mean? Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Adrian, what's that? Strengthen them. Give us power. Make us able to do it. Actually, in the, in the Greek, there's a strong connection between power and being made able. So you are able now to speak with great boldness. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. By the way, notice they have already done that. But they're not resting on their laurels. They recognize it could all just pop like a bubble the next day if God doesn't support them. And so they have to keep going back, keep going back and say, Lord, give us more of that. Give us more power, more strength. That glorifies God. They're not strong in and of themselves. They're strengthened by God, by the Holy Spirit. So stretch out your hand to heal and perform great signs and wonders, it says, uh, through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And it says, after they prayed, the place where where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Isn't that wonderful? They get right there the answer to prayer. They ask for that and that's the very thing they get. You want to be a strong witness for Christ, then ask him for it. Ask him uh, to, to make you bold. And by the way, let me just tell you how that works. Okay, There's so many misunderstandings about this. Let me tell you a time that I witnessed at a workplace. Uh, years ago, I, was, I, I worked at a company called Eaton Nova. And... Um, um, 
I wanted to be a faithful witness, and I, want, you know, I was trying to lead people to Christ there in the workplace environment. And there was this one guy who was kind of like a foreman of all the hourly workers. He'd been there for a long, long time. Tough guy. Tough. You know, no nonsense. Uh, he's the kind of guy that fired people if they didn't you know, show up on time or whatever. He was the kind of guy you actually would want to run you know, that side of the, uh, the business. And uh, the Lord laid him on my heart. <laughs> that I wanted to share the gospel with him. I was terrified of this guy. I was just out of college. I was some young kid, and he was in his 50s. And, you know, he looked like he'd been a Marine storming every beach and, you know, whatever. I don't know. He just looked tight. He probably was never even in the Army, but I always thought he was. I always thought he was probably some Special Forces guy or something like that. But he just looked tough. And, and I remember the day came where I really felt the Lord wanted me to witness to that guy. And I said, Lord... I don't want a witness to this guy. I don't want to. Say, I, I figured out he always ate lunch at his bench, and uh, he was there all the time. I kind of studied him a little bit, and I knew his, that was his regular pattern. He wasn't always there, but that was his regular pattern. And so, um, I thought, okay, the perfect time is when he's just sitting down to eat lunch. I'll go up and say something about Jesus to him. <laughs> and uh, but I wasn't quite ready to do it. And so I said, Lord, if you want me to witness to this guy. I pray that he'd be sitting at his bench. It was a fleece, just very simple thing, though. If he was up getting a drink or something like that, I wasn't going to witness to him. But if he was sitting there, I was going to go for it. And so I came around the corner hoping that he wasn't there, hoping that he was away for a moment or something like that. But there he was, seated at his bench, eating his sandwich. And so I came back around the corner, and I was like, okay, it's on. We're on. And uh, so I said, Lord, I know you want me to do this. I know you do. Just give me strength. And the strength came in the next few seconds. I walked and went and did it. And it was pathetic. It was, there was nothing spectacular about it. I, I, I think it lasted about seven seconds. I had a little print, printed track. I, I said, uh, Ray, uh, he said, what? And I said, uh, well, um, this is a little booklet that explains how you can have a relationship with Jesus. I think you need him. And then I handed it to him and walked away. <laughs> That's about all I could do. But, but here's the thing, and I'm not telling you, it's like, you know, then he became a missionary to, you know, and all this. I don't know. Maybe he did. I, I don't have any idea what happened with Ray. But I know this. I did what God wanted me to do. He didn't take away all the feelings. He didn't take all that away. But I found myself doing it, and then it was done. And I actually think we did have a few conversations after that uh, a number of times. I don't know that he came to faith. But I think sometimes Christians are waiting for more than God has promised. I think the strength is that you go do it. It's not that you stop all the fluttering feelings inside you. I mean, that's, I think, actually, to some degree, a gift you give to God. It's like, despite all of that, in obedience, I'm going to go. Yes? I think sometimes people think they have got to accomplish the whole thing. Right. And all you, I mean, you may just, you may open just one door. Right. You may even get someone angry. Yeah. But um, you ought to keep working on it, and they'll be thinking. Yeah. Someone else will. So, you know, if you only thought of that, they wouldn't have to be so afraid. They'd just say, oh. say something fast and run. That's <laughs> <laughs> about what happened. Uh, so thank you. I feel better all the time about that encounter. But at any rate, power for evangelism. I think we ought to step out in faith and do it. Don't look for uh, removal of all the physiological effects of nervousness and all that. What you're looking for is, did you obey? That's the whole thing. Did you do what God wanted you to do? That's where the power comes from because he's glorified in weakness. Remember how the Apostle Paul said, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling as I preached the gospel? So he didn't have all his flutterings taken away, uh, but he did it. That's the whole point so that, that it might be a display of the Spirit's power. First uh, Corinthians chapter two, power for lasting good works. Second uh, Thessalonians one eleven. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of His calling, and that by His power He may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. So, in other words, you may have some good ideas of good things you'd like to do, some some dreams, some some hopes and visions, and um, you know He's praying that by God's power it might actually happen, and and that good will result of it. Eternal eternal good fruit will come by God's power. So that's what he's praying for there in 2 Thessalonians. So power also for contentment. This is such an important lesson. Okay, I, I read by Jeremiah Burroughs a great book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Just a great Puritan book on, on contentment. All right, and uh, of course the key passages in Philippians where Paul says, um, Philippians 4, 12 and 13, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret 
of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through Christ who strength or through him who gives me strength. All right, so what I want you to do is connect the concept of strength to contentment. Okay, what is the relationship between strength and con- contentment? Do you see a connection between those two? Why is that, Bert? Why does it take strength of character, let's say, internal strength, to be content? Yeah, I mean, and the, yeah. Yeah, the average person will be content when. I'm not talking Christian, non-Christian. When are they going to be content? When everything's just dialed in right. Does that ever happen? Sometimes it does. I mean, people aren't constantly miserable. I mean, yeah, when everything's lined up, everything's perfect. That's when the people will be content. You know, Paul Paul's right. You know, writing from 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 jail. You know, he's he's in in jail when he's writing this in chains for Christ. You know, the the thing is, life brings or God brings circumstances that are adverse, and it takes a real strong person to be content through all of that. And you're like, oh, he's a real strong person. That's not even what Paul's saying here. There's a secret to be learned. What is the secret that he's learned? Yeah. Okay. On him who gives me strength. I can do it. I can I can be content if God gives me strength for it. Yes, Adrian. That's right. So what he's learned is I don't walk apart from Jesus. I stay really close to him. I, I abide as the, as the branch in the vine. I stay really close to Jesus. And as I do that, I find myself content through all different kinds of circumstances. It's really quite remarkable. The implication is that it's not part of the original equipment of Christian conversion. Everything's there. It's not like there's anything lacking, but it was a secret he had to learn. He had to learn that. It didn't come like, like right away in his Christian life. He had to learn how to do it. How do you learn how to do that? Be content in any and every situation, well-fed or hungry, living in place. Chris, how do you learn that? Yeah. Experience is a great teacher. And you go through the one and you're miserable. And then another time you prayed and you're in some frame of mind, it's with the Spirit, go through and you're content. You're like, hmm, what was the difference? You do a little experimentation. First of all, it's clearly better to be content through it all. And after a while, little by little, you learn. Yeah. right and that's a, isn't that what jesus said when uh when he said man does not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of god when he was tempted to turn the stones into bread he's saying god hadn't told me to do it apparently god's will for me to be still hungry some more if he actually says all right you're you're, you're unleashed you're free go ahead and turn those stones into bread he'd do it but he hadn't told him to do it yeah i've heard it expressed by you know you have to play the game with the cards you're dealt mm-hmm. god deals the cards yeah yeah, and he's, he purposely chooses to deal short of what maybe you would have chosen for yourself. And I think part of it is he wants us to learn this secret, this lesson, how to be content in any every situation. And by the way, it's tremendously powerful for evangelism because it's so otherworldly. Contentment in adverse circumstances. So it's like, you know, it's really a tough thing when you stop and think about it because the only way you're going to learn it, according to what Chris said, is to go through adverse circumstances. So it's like, do you really want to enroll in the PhD program here of being a tremendous witness for Jesus really on display in adverse circumstances? Well, welcome to adverse circumstances. That's the only way you can get there. But you can say, but look at the witness that Paul and Silas had to the Philippian jailer. Look at the witness that happens when you sing praise songs in the middle of the night after being beaten. It's a tremendous witness. I'd like to be like that. So anyway, long story short is it takes strength. And, and just let's, let's, without going extreme, let's just talk about an average day. You get up, you have your quiet time, you focus on Christ, you get renewed, focus on him, and then you get up and the day starts coming at you. And boy, does it take strength to walk with Jesus through the day, doesn't it? It just takes so much strength. And so to be content in any and every situation just really takes a remarkable strength. Okay, so strength in all of these things. Uh, power for hope is another one. Uh, Romans fifteen thirteen, very similar to contentment. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So there's a connection between power and hope. It takes ongoing power through, of the Holy Spirit to keep your hope in heaven alive and strong. Uh, it's very similar to contentment at that point. All right, so these are various states of the soul and body 
in which we display weakness and we need God to strengthen us. All of them are based on prayer. If you look at them, I, I tried in every case to show how this power comes from God. I hoped uh, to show it through prayer in particular, if you can find it. So you can pray for all of these things and not just for yourself, but for others. Imagine somebody going through a trial and say, you know, it's probably that they need to be strengthened in this or that way. I've been through some trials. I know what that's like. Pray that you would strengthen him or her through this and that. That's a tremendous prayer, prayer ministry. Okay. All right. Now, uh, the prayer, sorry, the power of God is needed or all is worthless. We're talking about power through prayer. All right. Why do we need it? Well, bottom, bottom line is we're trying to do a work that will stand for eternity. I mean, we're, we're trying to do, to do things that will last forever. Jesus said, spoke of fruit that will last. You know, there's, there's nothing we can do that would stand for eternity, you know, in and of ourselves. And so God's power has to be at work or else it will not be uh, of any use at all. Uh, a scripture says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. So we have to build by the power of God. God has to build through us. And so the basic issue of ministry then is to overcome forces that are too powerful for us, overcome the devil and the flesh and the world, overcoming trials, even overcoming successes. You know, what do I mean by that? Well, you may get a big head, you know, and, and get prideful. And then the Lord may have to chasten you, etc. So you have to learn how to abound and how to be abased. You have to go through both of those things and learn how to do it right. And so you have to overcome all of these things. We have to overcome. We've got to have power from God. I want to close this little meditation by talking about this issue of, excuse me, unction in, pray, in preaching. And I do this not because many of you or most of you are going to be preachers, um, but just because I think it's important in a local church ministry that the preaching ministry have this issue of unction or anointing from the Holy Spirit. Now, it's an unfamiliar word. It's a word that we probably are not used to seeing. Uh, it is there in the KJV in 1 John 2.20. Ye, but ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. Uh, what does it mean? Well, it means an anointing. Go ahead, Adrian. What were you going to say? I'm sorry. Illumination. Okay. All right. I think very, very uh, uh, similar. It's, it's a ministry of the Holy Spirit on you. It's actually very hard to define. Okay, it's hard to define. But, you know, haven't you heard anointed preaching versus kind of non-anointed preaching? I mean, somebody can be doing a creditable job in, in preaching and, and getting some thoughts across. You may be benefiting, but it just doesn't seem to be on fire. You know, and it's, it's very, very hard to, uh, to, to grab at it. And I'll tell you this, it's, you know, it, my sense of it is not perfect, but I don't sense that it's always there when I preach. You know, I, to me, I ask God for it, and, you know, but there are just some times that are more anointed, it seems, than others. Sometimes in which I, see, I sense the presence of God more than at other times. And so uh, it's just the power of God on the preaching ministry to, to produce eternal fruit. So Paul puts on this display of the power of God, power of signs and wonders. Uh, he talks about in Romans 15, uh, he says, I'm not going to venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I've said and done. So he talks about the display of the power of God in Paul's ministry. But especially there's this idea of power in weakness. Okay, 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 12, he says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We're hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal bodies. So then death is at work in us, but life at work in you. So Paul's saying that, that as he is crushed and goes through terrible trials and is made, it's displayed that he is an earthenware vessel. He's just a fragile, cracked pot. Um, you know, that God's power actually is on display in that kind of a ministry. That's what he's saying. And so the power in the gospel, he uh, says very, very plainly that we have to get to the point where we realize the power is in God and in the word, not in the messenger. Do you know what I'm saying? It's not, it's not the preacher. It's God and the word that is the power of God for salvation and transformation. That's what he's getting at. And so Paul talks about this in, uh, in 1 Corinthians, how God is zealous. 
to remove all human elements in one way so that he alone gets the glory for the work being done. That the building that's being built on the foundation that is Christ is done only by the power of God. He wants the glory. And so Paul is very aware of that. In 1 Corinthians 1, he says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. What is he saying there? He's saying, I didn't study rhetoric or eloquence. It wasn't a special study of mine to think of verbal techniques to know how to get it across, to be really, really eloquent and wordy and polished in my speech. Because if I did that, the cross of Christ would be emptied of its power. That's what he's saying. I'm not, I didn't do that. I didn't study technique. It's so sad these days that I think pastors really do study technique a lot of times. And, and it worries me because I just don't think that an eternal work gets built that way. I think you can draw a crowd. I think you can have a lot of stuff going on. You can have more money. You can have brighter, shinier, newer things. But I don't know that you can have the anointing of God that way. If you're studying technique, it seems to me that what Paul's saying is that that empties the cross of its power. It empties the cross of its power. So I didn't study rhetorical techniques or wisdom in that way. For the message of cross is foolishness. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. All right, First Corinthians 1, 23-25, it says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's weakness, uh, wisdom, and the weakness of God stronger than man's strength. And so, as I already mentioned earlier, Paul uh, talks about how he preached. When I came to you, brothers, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Well, that is such an important concept for pastors to learn. And frankly, I think it's important for the people to learn too. So that you don't have a taste for technique, a taste for, for that kind of pre presentation and, and polish. What you're looking for is you're looking for an anointing. You're looking for the Spirit of God changing your life when you hear that message preached. That's, you're looking for a transformed life. Paul says, you are our letters of recommendation written on your hearts by the way you're living your life. That's how everybody knows I'm an apostle is by looking at your life. And so that's the thing. If, if the ministry is transforming hearts and lives, then the power of God is at work in it. If not, then it's just technique, frankly, and it doesn't glorify God. So apostolic power is different than human power. First Corinthians 4, 19 and 20 he says, I'll come to you very soon if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how those arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Very important for me, again, as a preacher. It's not a matter of talk. It's got to do with power. Uh, yeah, go ahead, please. Right. That's right. That's right. Exactly, exactly. And it seems that we've been saying here, God's strength is his power is put on display in weakness. So in some ways, it's even even more powerful if the person isn't having this kind of polish. Um, Paul says, though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of Christ. We're ready to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. He's saying the, the warfare we're fighting is at a whole different level and we need supernatural power to do it. So earthly human techniques and all that just doesn't do it. We've got to have the power of God. Okay, so. What does this say to you if you're perhaps not in a teaching ministry? Well, you should be praying that for the teaching ministry of this church. My preaching, when I preach, whenever anyone preaches, you should be praying for that, that, uh, that God would be glorified and, ex and exalted in the preaching. Uh, I've, I've told this story before, but at New Meadows Baptist Church where I, where I preached, there was this thing that hung over the front. And uh, up in front, uh, on, on, on this side, there was this Velcro, these Velcro tabs that they stuck onto the thing on the underside, but on the top side, there was a cross-stitched message. So it was oriented 180 degrees opposite from what was hanging down from the front. So it was for me. So I got to read it. And it said the same thing. You know, every week I read the same thing. Step aside, sir, so that they may see Jesus. 
get out of the way and make Jesus glorious. That's really what, you know, and interestingly in history, that's what was written across Spurgeon's pulpit too. Because here's a guy that could really go in for the eloquence. I mean, he had those kind of gifts, but he knew that his eloquence wouldn't achieve anything. It really had to be the unction, the anointing of the Holy Spirit that would achieve anything. Conversions, life changes. Step aside, sir, that they may see Jesus. And so, um, J.I. Packer talks about the first time he heard one of the most anointed preachers of the 20th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a Welsh preacher from the revivalist uh, tradition. Uh, He had a tremendous uh, preaching ministry. Um, J.I. Packer talks about the first time he ever heard Martin Lloyd-Jones preach. Um, When he was a 22-year-old student, he heard Lloyd-Jones preach every Sunday in London school year 48-49, he said he'd never heard such preaching. It came to him with the force of electric shock, bringing more of a sense of God than any man that he had ever known. So it's like you're getting shocked. There's a sense of the presence, the immediacy of God, that God is there. So uh, I heard Don Carson talk about the first time he heard Lloyd-Jones preach toward the end of his ministry. So Don Carson said, when he sat down to listen, this is the big moment now, because this is later in Lloyd-Jones' ministry. He's a famous preacher at this point. So it's like, oh, get to hear Lloyd-Jones preach. He said, the first five, seven minutes, I thought, the one thought that overwhelmed me was, this guy is overrated. <laughs> and and he, he said as an aside, Lloyd-Jones didn't have great intros. He just kind of got going a little bit slowly. It wasn't something that grabbed you like this dramatic moment or something. He just kind of gave you a little bit of background and just kind of got, got rolling slowly. So he said, man, this is a bit dry, you know, overrated. However, he said, by the middle of the sermon, he had changed his opinion entirely and he thought that he was the greatest preacher he'd ever heard in his life. I mean, he was just absolutely blown away. But by the end of the sermon, he wasn't thinking about Lloyd-Jones at all. He was thinking about the greatness of Christ and of the gospel, and of the text that he had been preaching. Lloyd-Jones just disappeared. I would love that to happen every time I preach, that people would think I'm overrated, okay? And then they would move, I don't care about the middle stage, but they would move quickly to the last one where I just disappear. And they start thinking about the scripture and what we're talking about and the greatness of the gospel and the greatness of the things of the soul, you know? and of the of eternity that lays out in front of us and, and judgment to heaven and hell and souls and their own salvation and forgiveness. And they would just be moved by these things. That's something I can't achieve. Something has to come on, on us together. Preacher and hearers, an unction, anointing. Yeah, Bill. How do you define expository preaching then and why is it important? Well, I think that expository preaching is, is vital to it because my understanding of expository preaching is it's the way that a preacher steps aside and lets God speak because you're really just preaching the text. You're just preaching the scripture because the the power is in the word. The power is in the word. And so expositional preaching, the goal of expositional preaching is to take the word and make it the point of the sermon so that the word is the sermon. Okay. I think in the way I understand non-expositional preaching is you're not taking out from and setting before expositionalist to place out from. You're not doing that. Well, where is it coming from? All that stuff you're listening to? 45 minutes of what? It's coming from somewhere else. And so that, I think, is technique, okay? Exposition is the Bible is flowing through this preacher. So I think it's essential to it. Now, some will say, was oh, it line by line? That's a different matter. That's, that's, it, it doesn't have to be, Okay. You can do different things. And frankly, I don't think you can do line-by-line preaching in, let's say, the book of Proverbs. You guys don't want to hear me go line-by-line through Proverbs. Can you imagine? You know, for the next three years, we're going line-by-line through the book of Proverbs. You know, I don't think that'll work, do you? So I've kind of taken a topical approach to Proverbs, and I'm kind of okay with that. Are you guys okay with that? Unless you want me to go line-by-line through chapter 14. And don't do it. All right, so... And next, well, here's another another proverb on the tongue. Let's read it together and see what it says. I, you know, it just isn't going to work. So it's not that. But it's just that what you're preaching is coming up from the Bible and across. That's the point. So I think it's essential. And a follow-up on that at all, Bill? Anything else you want to no, say? Mark, okay. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones was one of the greatest expositors. He was. He was. Absolutely, absolutely. So um, I have some quotes here on unction. How is it attained? Uh, E.M. Bounds had a lot to say about this. Um, Look at uh, page 12. 
what is what is unction? There is something in preaching that cannot be ascribed either to matter or expression, and cannot be described what it is or from whence it cometh. But with a sweet violence it pierceth into the heart and affections and comes immediately from the Lord. But if there be any way to obtain such a thing, it is by the heavenly disposition of the speaker. So I don't think that the preacher has nothing to do with it. I think it's a gift of God through the preacher to the to the church. And so therefore, the preacher's own commitment to personal holiness is essential. E.M. Bounds, which we'll read in a moment, says it comes through much prayer, much time spent in prayer. Jonathan Edwards used to spend 13 hours a day in his study. <clears throat> and people thought that he that, you know, have misunderstood that that was 13 hours of studying. Well, I don't think it was 13 hours of studying. I think it was 13 hours of working over the text with God. And much of that would be prayer. So by the time he actually preached, you had a sense that you were hearing from Almighty God from this. And you have to read the sermons and, <clears throat> I mean, it's just hard to describe, but there's just a sense that it makes, as it says here, the word of God quick and powerful, sharper than any double-edged sword. And listen to this. It creates massive upheaval in the hearers, converting some, transforming others, and leaving still others enraged. Oh, that's cool, huh? <laughs> As uh, Martin Luther said, you should always preach in such a way that when you get done, people will hate their sins or hate you, one or the other. <laughs> well, that's not a goal of mine, but you know, at any rate, you can see why he says it. It's just such an encounter with God where you just have to leave your sins behind. You just have to. You're called to, to, to into the consuming fire to go and dwell with God who is holy. There's that sense of that. Etc. Unction then backs and impregnates revealed truth with all the energy of God. Unction is, si is simply putting God in his own word and on his own preacher. How is it attained? E.M. Bounds put it this way. By mighty and great prayerfulness and by continual prayerfulness, it is all powerful and personal to the preacher. It inspires and clarifies his intellect, gives insight and grasp and projecting power. It gives to the preacher heart power, which is greater than head power. And tenderness, purity, uh, force flow from the heart by it. Enlargement, freedom, fullness of thought, directness, and simplicity of utterance are the fruits of this unction. Again, he says this, this unction comes to the preacher not in the study, but in the closet. It is heaven's distillation in answer to prayer. It is the sweetest exhalation of the Holy Spirit. It impregnates, suffuses, softens, percolates, cuts, and soothes. It carries the word like dynamite, like salt, like sugar. It makes the word a soother and a rainer, a revealer, a searcher. It makes the hearer a culprit or a saint, makes him weep like a child and live like a giant, opens his heart and purse as gently yet as strongly as the spring opens the leaves. The, uh, this unction is not the gift of genius. It is not found in the halls of learning. No eloquence can woo it. No industry can win it. It is the gift of God, the signet set to his own messengers. It is heaven's knighthood given to the chosen, true, and brave ones who have sought this anointing, uh, anointed honor through many an hour of tearful, wrestling prayer. And again, he says, prayer, much prayer is the price of preaching unction. Prayer, much prayer is the one sole condition of keeping this unction. Without unceasing prayer, the unction never comes to the preacher. So basically his answer is prayer, all right, through, through, you know, praying. And I think for me, specifically praying over the text, a prayerful engagement with the text heats up my own heart toward it and makes me able to communicate a little bit um, more clearly. So uh, this is, these are powerful things. Richard Cecil put it this way, without unction, preaching is worthless. All the minister's efforts will be vanity or worse than vanity if you have not unction. Unction must come down from heaven and spread a savor and feeling and relish over his ministry. And among the other means of qualifying himself for his office, the Bible must hold the first place and the last must be given to the word of God in prayer. Spurgeon said this, one bright benison which private prayer brings down upon the ministry is an indescribable and inimitable something, an unction from the Holy One. If the anointing which we bear comes not from the Lord of hosts, we are deceivers, since only in prayer can we obtain it. Let us continue instant, constant, fervent in supplication. Let your fleece lie on the threshing floor of supplication till it is wet with the dew of heaven. Well, obviously for me as a preacher, these are very convicting words. They challenge me to more prayer, more fervent prayer. Uh, I think you also should be praying for me as I preach, for others as they preach. You can pray the same for those uh, that teach you the Word of God. 
But you know it's a two-way street. You should also be praying for an anointing to come on the congregation. If you look at the only use of the word unction in the KJV, it's speaking of all Christians, isn't it? But you have an unction from the Holy Spirit and you know the truth. So basically then the anointing comes on us to be able to receive into our hearts the truth and be transformed by it. Any questions about power through prayer? I want to, uh, I can linger here. I've got another study and we'll go on to it next week uh, as well. But we have 15 minutes. Any questions about this whole topic, power through prayer? Chris. I think so, absolutely. A lot of times it has to do with um, with um, uh, applications, ways that... I mean, in other words, a lot of times when that happens, Chris, um, it has to do with who I'm really speaking to. Who is the flock that God has entrusted to my care? How can I bring this home to minister to people that I love and that I've known? That's really the strong connection. But I don't deny that um, insights that I get from the Word I ascribe to God's working in me too. I don't think it's because I'm clever or have some technique of finding them. I can look at a passage and not see anything and then come back and it's, I can see something. And I just, I just feel that that's a gift from God. So thank you for asking that. More about unction? Anything else? Or power? It doesn't just have to be unction. Power through prayer? Yes. Yeah, that's true. You know, I think when they're talking about this without unction, uh, we could just say without the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the preaching is worthless, the reading of the word is worthless. You know, the Lord has to minister to us. We are dependent on him. I mean, it does not glorify God for us to gain any insights or grow in any way apart from his work. He just isn't going to do it. And so it doesn't happen. I think that's what it's saying. It does not happen apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. All right, well, uh, you can take this home and meditate on these verses. You, I guess what I would urge you to do is just, just look at yourself and see your own weaknesses and start praying toward those weaknesses. Pray that God would send a heavenly strength into you to do the good works he wants you to do. And then extend it outward horizontally to the brothers and sisters in Christ, that God would strengthen them in their weakness. We are weak and we should be praying for one another. Let's get to the next study and let's talk about prayer warriors in action. We have too much to study um, you know, in one week, so maybe we can get a start on it. And I think one of the basic ideas that I get here is that so much of the Christian life is, uh, is caught by way of, of looking at godly examples. Follow my example, says Paul, as I follow the example of Christ. And it just being in the presence of spiritual giants who were great men of prayer. And uh, I, I'm going to start with Abraham. Uh, there's some other biblical examples. Uh, I may fill them out by next week. Uh, but then I want to go over to church history and just talk about some of the great figures from church history and what I've learned, I personally have learned from them in their prayer lives. And uh, it's not all of them. There's a lot more heroes than this. I left George Mueller off because I refer to him so frequently um, that I figured I'd go a different direction. But let's start, start first with Abraham. And one of the great examples of intercessory prayer in the Bible and in Abraham's life is his intercession over Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember that whole encounter. And it's quite powerful, isn't it? As it seems that Abraham is, is bartering with God. Isn't that, isn't that quite, a, quite a thing? He's kind of negotiating with him. Uh, but it's a great picture of perseverance in prayer, of, of the persistent widow who just won't, won't be denied. He's going to keep on praying and keep on working on it. Um, it's quite amazing. So let's look at the account in Genesis 18. It says, When the men got up to leave, uh, they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. So basically all that is is a kind of in the heart of God conversation. Isn't it marvelous how God tells us what he was thinking? You know, Chris, we just covered that where God smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of mankind. Well, here we have, you know, God saying within himself, 
shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Because he's going to be a great man. And, you know, it's just a very interesting insight into the heart of God here. Then the Lord said, verse 20, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Now, the text implies that he, the Lord, said that to whom? Who does he say that to? Could be to the men, the angels that are going down. It's possible. But since the very next thing that happens is Abraham starts praying over this issue, I think it's very clear that Abraham hears this as well or that it's even directly said to Abraham. Especially since what just preceded is, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? The implication is, no, I shall not. And then he speaks. I'm going to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah and see if it's really as bad as I've heard it is. Well, what does Abraham think he's going to find when he goes down there? Do you think Abraham's aware of what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah? What do you think? Tim, do you think Abraham's aware of how bad it is down there? I think so. Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt in his mind. My guess is he had regular interactions with Lot, his nephew, and he had a sense probably of just how bad it was. So when God says, I'm going to go down there and find out if it's as bad as the outcry against it, Abraham is motivated at this point to start praying for the place. And that's, you know, because it's very, very bad down there. And he knows it very well. So the men turned away and went down toward Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? So what's going on there as Abraham intercedes? What's his concern? What's he zealous about there, Adrian? That's right. So he's really actually got two concerns here, doesn't he? He's concerned clearly about any righteous people that might be living down in Sodom, right? He's concerned about them. How do you know he's concerned about them? Yeah, a lot, his nephew. Yeah, he's yeah, he's down there. So he's he's worried about Lot. Okay? But he extends it out to 50 thinking, you know, there may be 50 righteous people. Is he worried that the wicked are going to get swept away in the wrath of God? Is he worried about them? Apparently not. <laughs> he's not worried about them at all. But he is concerned that God would not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. What's the other thing that he's concerned about? Not just the righteous, yeah. Concerned about the reputation of God. And this is a consistent theme in the great intercessors. Interceding based on God's name and on his reputation. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Shall not the judge of... Now, Landis, you have quoted this verse before, okay, in Revelation about that. Righteous are you, O Lord, holy and true, because you have so judged. All right, what do you get out of that verse from Revelation? There it is. There has to be a standard of righteousness, and there is one. His name is the Lord. So it's impossible for the judge of all the earth not to do right, because whatever he does is right. But it's also clear that there's a sense or an instinct in Abraham of righteousness, and he wants to be sure that God lives up to it. Now, I will say this. God doesn't always live up to our standard of righteousness. He does some very surprising things, like killing his own son. That's very surprising. All right? So, But for all of that, God goes along with it. And he says, you know, uh, the Lord said, verse 26, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Remarkable statement there. It's the very thing that Abraham has asked him for. <clears throat> then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? So in other words, if we had just come up with five more righteous people, you know, but that wasn't enough. So, you know, Lord, that doesn't make much sense to me either. Notice his humility, too. He says, though I am just dust and ashes. That's exactly what he is. We are, we, are, we are dust, and to dust we'll return. So he's humble. He recognizes that. But he's being very bold here. Uh, and then God answers, if I find 45 there, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. 
Abraham said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of the 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of the 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. So it's a remarkable example of persistence and boldness in prayer. The prayer does not seem to have been answered. Okay, so I want you to be with Abraham the next morning. Okay, the next morning, it says, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Now, the Genesis account gives a very clear indication of, hey, remember the prayer time? Because that's what he said, the very place where he had stood before the Lord. So we're supposed to remember the prayer time. And what does he see? He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. Now, you may have had a moment like that in your prayer life, okay? It's like, this is not what I had in mind. Have you ever prayed for something that went exactly the opposite of what you were thinking? You know, and, and I have often thought about dense smoke rising from Sodom after a prayer time. It's like, uh, wow, <laughs> this is not what I was thinking. You know, Lord, I asked for this and I got this. And all I want to say is Abraham's prayer seems not to have been answered. Why do I say that? Well, you just have to read the next verse. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the, through the cities where Lot lived. So why, does it, why is it written like that? He remembered Abraham and brought Lot out. What's the clear implication there? He heard his prayer. He did it in answer to Abraham's prayer. He got the gist of what he was getting at. And the gist was, let's rescue the righteous people, right? Remember how the angel said, you better hurry because I can do nothing until you're safe. He's just hindered. He's held back. He can't do anything until Lot is safe. Yes. I wonder if we had any knowledge that Abraham would have known the precedent of chapter 6 in Genesis where he did destroy the entire earth. He found eight. Yeah. Possibly so. Possibly so. All I want to say is that it may seem that God doesn't answer your prayers. Sometimes there may be, in this case, a man hidden in a cave somewhere, hidden from your sight. And that's the answer to your prayer. Lot was rescued. And I'm not going to go into what happened with Lot and his daughters. All I'm saying is the text clearly indicates that God answered Abraham's prayer. That Abraham's prayer was effective. It was powerful. His boldness. Now, E.M. Bounds gives us this comment. It bothered me years ago. It bothers me still. So let's, uh, let's read it and I'll uh, comment on it and we'll finish with it. All right. E.M. Bounds said this. Perhaps the failure to ultimately rescue Sodom from her doom of destruction was due to Abraham. Just stop there. I know it says Abraham's, but we'll just say it's Abraham's fault. Why? Well, because he had an overly optimistic view of the spiritual condition of that city. It might have been possible, who knows, that if Abraham had entreated God once more and asked him to spare the city, <clears throat> if only even one righteous man had been found there for Lot's sake, he might have heeded Abraham's request. Now, what is wrong with that? Well, you know what's wrong with that? He didn't read the, the account very carefully. Who initiated the encounter. Who started it? God did. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Right? He started the whole thing. Who ended it? Well, look at verse 33. Somebody read verse 33. It's right there, printed on the page, I think. 1833. Go ahead, David. So who finished with whom there? God finished with Abraham. So I like to stop right there, stop at 10, and off you go. So Ian Bounds just need to read uh, Genesis 18, verse 33, a little more carefully. The bottom line is God had willed to, to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and to rescue Lot in answer to Abraham's prayer. What's wrong with Ian Bounds' account? It's too man-centered. It's basically God responding to us. We're calling the shots. We have to assess. We have to predict. We have to try to figure out. We have to ask for just the right thing. The whole thing is Abraham didn't exact ask for just the right thing. But God knew what Abraham wanted, and he wanted the righteous to be saved. And that's what he got. All right? Um, and in the end, it happened exactly as God wanted and as Abraham desired as well. Yes, Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, but at the same time, God answered the prayer. So I, I hate that man-centered view. I love Ian Bounds' writings generally on prayer. Very, very good. But the man-centeredness is not helpful. We are servants. Doesn't it say that Abraham stood before the Lord? Why does it use that kind of language? It uses it twice, to the place where he stood before the Lord. Chris, what, what image does that give you? Abraham was stood before the Lord. 
Okay, yeah. Abraham's the servant. He knows. He knows. All right. So bottom line is God's commitment to justice and mercy and compassion is infinitely greater than yours. He knows what to do. And Abraham's prayer was answered. God heard Abraham and rescued Lot. The mystery, I'll never be able to figure it out. But God answers prayer. And it's a powerful example. So let's be like uh, Abraham. Any final comments before I close in prayer? Bill, go ahead. Absolutely. And let's remember how the whole thing began. Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? It's all about what God is doing. And we're participating in that. Flynn, would you close us in prayer, please? Thank you. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.